Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Run. I can't do it. We just start over. We just start over. Because we're not changing the name of the podcast. This is still the name of the podcast. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we are talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Also, we took a run this morning. We took a Let run. the record reflect. What are you astonished by? I'm astonished by um, our difficulty in worship this past Sunday. We just had a hard go of it on Sunday. Um, worship was was like walking through waist-high mud, thick mud. And I should have known better. I'm astonished because I just should have known better. So the sermon was about uh, Jesus overcoming the power of the demons. Jesus goes into the synagogue. He's teaching. A demon-possessed man cries out. Jesus tells the demon to be quiet and to leave the man. And so the whole sermon was around the authority of Jesus over all the demons that harass and bind and uh, possess us. What Paul calls the powers and principalities. Powers and principalities, yes. And as I was preparing the message, the thought came to me, and it was probably the Holy Spirit that said, you should expect some pushback, some opposition, right? Because the enemy probably does not want this message preached, right? Um, and I, I just didn't do anything with that thought. I, I didn't pray. I didn't, I just acknowledged it in my head. I just kind of said, yeah, that, that's right. And when we got into worship, I mean, every element felt, um, it just felt hard. It felt, um, like the life was sucked out of it. And I'm not blaming anyone because it was the it was the whole room, it was the environment, myself included. And even in the context of worship, I should have stopped and said, "Hey friends, this is what's happening here." And I didn't even do that. I just tried to force my way through it and um Sunday afternoon, as I was thinking about worship, I just became really angry. Angry for several reasons, some noble and some not so noble. Um, I became angry because, number one, I'm just zealous for, for the Lord and the things of God, and I'm zealous for the Lord's people and for them having a certain kind of experience on Sunday mornings. Um, it matters to me that when people come, they have a good, a great worship experience, that they, um, that they experience the Lord Jesus in the context of worship. And I want to do everything that I can um, to create an environment uh, so that that happens. But also my ego gets mixed into that. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I just I had to wrestle with my anger um, on Sunday afternoon and... Um, yeah, I'm just astonished by the work of the enemy in the midst of our worship on Sunday that I should have seen coming and I didn't, um, but hopefully I will know better next time because Sunday's coming in a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's so interesting. Um, I mean, I think as pastors, to borrow a term, like we have to operate in such a double consciousness when we are leading worship um, because we need to be worshiping, right? And then we also need to have an awareness of what other people are doing. And um, it's just really, it's really difficult. And I think um, sometimes thinking about worship can stop you from being able to worship, yes. right? And so that that's a really, really tricky thing. And I think that's real for for everyone in the room, because when we're in a community and we're worshiping, I mean, the point and the power of Sunday morning worship is to worship together, because obviously we can all can and should worship alone. But so the, the point of a gathering is that you're gathered with the community. 
but also you're gathered together in order to be lost in the presence of God, right? So there's both like an awareness of the people around you, but also you have to be aware of how aware you are of the people around you and how sometimes worship can become performative, right? Like you're thinking about how other people are perceiving what you're doing or you're thinking about what other people are doing when what is it good right or just how how people are thinking seeing you and i mean that that's just a really difficult thing i mean to to be conscious of worship can really stop you from being able to worship and yet i mean as pastors it's our job to be conscious of worship and to be sort of noticing um, the community. And I mean, if you're leading people there, then you have to have an awareness of what they're doing. But at the same time, what other people are experiencing and feeling doesn't determine who God is or what God is doing in the room. It's just hard. And there's so much practicality involved in worship that, I mean, especially if if you are leading worship well, I think you always have an awareness kind of of who who's doing what and where they are in the room and how you know I mean you just you have to have that level of awareness and being able to like pick up things that are being dropped right I mean and that's in what you have to do that but at the same time if you're just sitting there producing worship then you're not worshiping and I think the thing that is really I mean I'm just aware of all the time that for you know, the middle-class white privileged American that I am, worship is a spiritual experience, right? Yes. I mean, and so that, I mean, is on the one hand, like, duh. But on the other hand, you, you can just walk in that space and, and not, um, I mean, I think some people walk in the space and are kind of hyper aware in an unhelpful way about the spiritual realm, like make it more woo-woo than, than needs to be. Because, I mean, for us, the spiritual realm is just a reality. And, and the way that we divide in our head or that we differentiate between what is spiritual and what is natural is, is just totally arbitrary, right? I mean, what we believe theologically is that all things come from God. Therefore, yes. there's nothing that isn't spiritual, right? So, I mean, there's just, there's a lot to unpack, but I would just say for a lot of people in the room, and I think, I mean, you used the D word, the demon word, and that I think can become a stumbling block to a lot of people. And so it's helpful for other people to process it as the powers and principalities. That's a more Presbyterian way to put it. But I mean, worship requires real vulnerability. I mean, really walking into a space and just being open and aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the room and really relinquishing some control. And that is something that many of us don't like, especially people um, who um, have been sort of suffered spiritual abuse in churches for lots of good reasons. And then some of us who were just kind of comfortable and winning at life don't, don't like, I mean, you know, so it just, there's real resistance to worship um, that we carry in our hearts. And I think that, you know, your gospel passage names that as a demon. Other people might, you know, name put a sociological term on it, but it's just, it's true and it's there. And um, it's, it's really hard, especially as a pastor, you, you both need to participate and be aware of what's happening and, it needs to be authentic and it can't be performative and you need to lead. So sometimes that means you go first and, and there's real, I think, um, integrity in praising when you don't feel like praising and contemplating, you know, keep continuing to like arbitrarily and even artificially returning your thoughts to certain aspects of who God is that takes discipline and intentionality. And that I think for some people would label that, um, artifice, but I would mm. label it intentionality. All I'm saying is, worship is hard work. It is work, yes. and it doesn't happen. I, I mean, I think sometimes people walk into worship and they have a deeply powerful spiritual experience, and to them, that feels very um, like just spontaneous, like it just mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, I I think, and this isn't manipulative, but like that 
you, the experience that one has of God in that room, probably there were some saints who were very deliberately thinking, praying, working, deciding certain things to, to create this space physically, liturgically, spiritually, so that people could have that kind of experience, right? And I just... Worshiping community is hard and it forms yeah. us. I mean, and I think sometimes what's helpful, because I've been there, like there are just times when you leave worship on Sunday afternoon and I just filled with self-loathing <laughs> and disgust. I mean, it is like worse than any hangover I've ever had. Like just the Sunday <laughs> afternoon, just like this yeah. mattered and the way I feel about it is terrible. Yeah. And on the one hand, you can know that that's your ego talking, but I mean, it doesn't make it feel any less crappy. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because if you don't care how worship is, then you're not a very good pastor. But it's really hard to just remember that how I feel about something doesn't doesn't at all determine how God used it for the sake of for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the individual people in the room. And some of what is good for us doesn't feel good to us. That's right. So yeah. that's um, just a really important thing. All I'm saying is, oh, I mean, <laughs> been there, done that, have the t-shirt, don't want to go back anytime soon. But now, not that I believe in in uh, jinxes, but I sort of feel like now it's inevitable that on Sunday I'm going to have a terrible worship hangover. And um, Well, one of my okay. consolations, one of my takeaways from... Uh, this past Sunday was, well, I must have been preaching, leaning in the right direction, I think so. right? If, if, if I, if I believe that what happened on Sunday is opposition, is resistance from the enemy, then that means we're headed in the right direction. It means I just got to keep leaning into that, even right. though it doesn't feel like we're making any progress. It, yeah, it, and another way to make that same point for people who are listening and feel uncomfortable with the supernatural framing that you put on it, which I agree with, mm -hmm. but another way to look at that sociologically is just to say, if there's that level of resistance in the room, mm -hmm. then it's then it's something that people are really fighting that I think they need, right? I mean, I just think some people run away from a, a deep, interpersonal, intimate vulnerable space in worship yes because with, with a supernatural jesus correct right right because because they know because again presbyterians have many challenges but stupid isn't one of them and they know that like if you let the spirit in you will be changed mm. and so if what you are looking for is a hardening of your worldview and a calcification of your life, then you need to lock that down in, um, you know, you need to distance yourself from the power of the Holy Spirit in liturgy, in ritual, in sort of, and one good way to do that, honestly, is just to have a hyper-awareness of other people in the space. Like, what is she wearing? Who, why isn't that kid in the nursery? Why? I mean, that's just one way to divert your attention from what God might be doing in the room I mean, you know, that's that's a really thing. And I am not saying that all liturgy is a spirit blocker. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. You can use it that way. You can use it that way. And, I mean, to be fair, you can use charismatic manifestations of, I mean, you can run the aisles to, I mean, like we can all use the gifts of God and the tools of the spirit to, we can just misuse them. So it doesn't matter what part, what your worship culture is. You can use the form of it in an inauthentic way, in a way to manipulate or control people if you want to do that. And uh, so. Yeah, well, last thing I'll say about this before we move to what's astonishing you is that I think where I am now with it is trying to discern what I do next as a leader. What, mm -hmm. What's my next leadership move in terms of how I pray, how I worship, how do I go first in a way that allows the family of Derida Church to follow me into the thing that God is calling us into. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's yeah. where I'm now. I mean, that's such an interesting, I mean, one of the things that this conversation brings up for me, and I think I've talked about it 
um, before is when I um, was serving a church in Boston and and the pastor I worked with would often talk about the energy in the room on Sunday mornings. And I found that I didn't understand. And I was actually kind of just, it was really off-putting and offensive to me. It sounded like really kind of woo-woo and <laughs> egotistical. Like I didn't, I just thought like, what's the matter with you? Why do you, why do you think that the way you feel determines what God is doing or the, the way you feel gives you an insight into what is happening inside other people's hearts, right? Like I just, I mean, I just think that that's an important disclaimer, much as we've all been in spaces where, I mean, you, I mean, there is energy in certain communities and certain gatherings. And I think, you know, that's a difficult thing to talk about because on the one hand, if you talk about it, you immediately kind of can't help but think of ways to manipulate it. Mm. And, and, but on the other hand, I think one of the reasons we avoid talking about it is because it's so frustrating to know that there's something so important that we totally don't control, right? Yes. And so that, you know, I just, I, I think that God is always pleased when the people of God gather to worship. And I don't think that God is more pleased. I mean, God is pleased when we worship as we can, not not requiring us to worship as we can't yet. And while we might have a need to like compare and contrast and rank because of our broken egos. I mean, I just don't think God does that at all. And so, I mean, for all of our communities, you know, somebody's somebody's worship experience might look or feel to the people in the room really great, but from God's eyes, it might be pure artifice. And then like the really hard, brave, scary, uncomfortable work that's going on at Derrida right now, I mean, might just I, I think probably does please God That's in just good. extraordinary yeah. ways because this isn't a group of people showing up to say, God, help me feel good about my spiritual self today. I mean, this is a group of people showing up saying, what's next? And how do you want us to change? And these ideas are scary to contemplate. And that's, I mean, that's real devotion to be able to lean into that and not just seek, um, you know, spiritual candy. So, And as I lead this family of God, this people of God through our wilderness, I think, okay, it's not personal. Yeah. Part of the problem with people like me is that when there is opposition, when there's resistance, well, it's got to be me. It's got to be my fault. Yeah. It's got, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just hard because I have a friend who jokes about she, she didn't come up in the mainline tradition, although she's serving a mainline church right now. And she, when she came to the grove, she was like, Ooh, I like how you have a compliment line after church, right? Cause you stand there and greet people and people walk out and they will tell you how they felt about worship. And like, I mean, a compliment line. First of all, like I, I'm not going to lie. Like I love it. Right. And when people don't say, you know, when people are like, I love your shoes, you're like, that's code for, worship was not good today right and so i it just it's so personal because it's so personal because as a pastor you're literally in front of everybody and you are holding up what is most sacred Precious, to you sacred yes and you're offering it up to people and you're offering it up to people knowing that it it's not for everyone in the room which is not a not a judgment against them i mean you know like it's just so hard when i was in college, I was a musician and I was a voice major. And one of the things they would talk to us about is that it's harder in some ways for voice majors than for any other kind of musician to receive criticism because with any other instrument, there's a there's a thing between you and the music or between you and the audience. So like if you're criticizing someone's violin playing, it's their violin playing. But when you're criticizing someone's singing, I mean, that's voice. just, that's just that's them, them. Right. Yeah. And so I think, um, that, that mm. it feels like that you can't help, but feel that way when you're the pastor, because part of what it feels like people are experiencing is you, like I'm having a reaction to not just your sermon, but like your, this is your life's work. So you, you know, and so that's not, that's not anybody, anybody in the congregation's burden. Let me just be clear it's it's not, and it's not anybody in the congregation's job to meet our emotional needs and certainly Correct. not our spiritual needs. Correct. I mean, that's why we have to be really grounded 
in who we are in Christ and really full of God's love so that there's an abundance. But I'm just saying... But we like, have to be self-aware enough to know right. that that kind of thing can, can just take over Correct. and really distort um, how we experience the congregation, how we lead the congregation. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And just, I mean, just to be aware that like as much as I know that it shouldn't feel that way, I, you and I, we're also just ordinary flawed people. And so we bring our humanity with us. And so that's just... It's just a lot some days. And so when it feels good, it feels great. And when it feels bad, it feels terrible. Which, I mean, not for nothing, but is another reason I think that as pastors, we have to be really, really intentional about Sabbath and about boundaries. um, Because there need to be parts of your life that are just unaffected by the sort of ups and downs of life in the church community. So, and I think so many pastors are encouraged to put the church first at all times. So like above their marriages, above their children, above their mental health. And so then when church is going bad, then it really is your whole life. But when you're in a space where, where your congregation is encouraging and supporting you and being healthy, then when it's bad, you just have more like emotional margin to be like, well, that was a hard day, mm-hmm. but that's not the totality of my life or my identity or who God is. And so I can just take a breath and, and come back tomorrow. But I mean, a lot of people can't do that because the excessive work culture has invaded how we understand church. Yeah, that's so. good. That's good. So what's astonishing you? Um, so on Sunday, we had a, a different preaching moment um, that we had four members of the congregation share testimonies about a time that they allowed themselves to be led by the Holy Spirit, because that is our fifth guiding principle. We seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. And so instead of doing a typical sermon where I would preach a text, which, I mean, I really, really enjoy that work. That's my favorite part of being a pastor, but it just seemed to be much more important for the congregation because we all agree with that in theory. So then the question is, like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Like, can we can we see some stories side by side so that we can compare and see that there's not just one way that this happens? Um, but it was just interesting. I mean, and to your point, I mean, I think it was really good. Um, I think that some people in the congregation, it was just the best worship service that they've ever been a part of. And for other people in the congregation, you know, it's just not their not their favorite thing for a variety of good reasons, and and that's okay, especially at the Grove. You know, it's okay. Something can be faithful and just not particularly for you or pleasurable to you, and and that's all right. But I mean, I think for the majority of people, the congregation, it was really really powerful. Um, it was long, and so we're not a congregation that's super stressed about getting out in an hour. But even for us, it was long, and so I think that's challenging for some people. Um, but for me, I was so happy, um, to see, because a lot of people's stories intersected with how they got to the Grove or, or how they stayed at the Grove. And it was really important for me that it was so visible, um, how the faithfulness of, um, people in the congregation created, created what God has done here. I mean, that God, because I think as the pastor, you're always sort of the most visible person that especially someone on the outside will look at a church and think like, oh, the church is X, so the pastor must be X. Um, And so it's really important for people to see like, as a pastor, you can be working faithfully, but I mean, you don't control what the people in your congregation choose to be and do. Right. And so... Um, it's important for me to, for in that moment, it was just very visible that there were people who were in the congregation who allowed the Holy Spirit to lead them past their preferences and past really their relational needs to be a part of what God was doing. And that there were people totally unconnected and outside of the congregation who allowed the Holy Spirit to lead them past their preferences and past their relational needs to be part of that community. So it was important. so helpful for people to see just how um, how brave and sacrificial and blessed mm. people were 
who allowed the spirit to lead them. And then also just for me, I, I really wanted people, because we're focusing on the individual level of the story, like this is what it looks like for an individual to allow themselves to be led by the Holy Spirit. But it was really helpful to make visible how we as a community are all reaping the harvest of one another's individual choices to be led by the spirit, right? And that's just a really, just how interdependent and interconnected our individual stories are. So it's not that you're led on this really hard journey and you sacrifice so that your brothers and sisters can, I mean, I think when the spirit leads us on a journey, and this is my experience and the experience of everyone up there, that there's there's a time of disorientation and discomfort and some sacrifice usually, but but you get to a place where you personally are deeply blessed and it's just you it bears rich spiritual fruit for you personally. And the whole there's it just has a ripple effect yeah. through our communities. And I think that is hard for American Christians to grasp because our culture is just so individually focused um, that A, we don't understand church in general, right? Because we're just like, I mean, I'll join a community if it is good for me individually, but if not, if I can't perceive that it's good for me individually, or if I don't perceive that I need it or want it, then you know, I'm out. But I also just, I mean, there are just ways where we limit our ability to experience the abundance that God has for us because we are not in a community. Mm-hmm. And when a community is health is healthy, not perfect, but healthy, um, then then our own individual stories of faithfulness, you know, we just we just get blessings from one another that we wouldn't get alone because God in his wisdom, calls individuals into community. I mean, that just, God has a people. It always has, always will. And I think, you know, I spent the first probably 35 years of my life before I even really noticed that. Um, mm. It was just because my my mindset was so Americanized that... Anyway, so I just, I was well, really and astonished. it's like we were saying, maybe even last week, that when a tree bears fruit, it bears fruit not for the tree itself, but for animals and people and others to come eat the fruit. And so when you are walking um, in obedience to God, the blessing that comes, the fruit of that, is a blessing to the people around you, to the community around you. Also, I just want to be clear that some people have had really rich experiences of being led by the Holy Spirit, and so they're they're down for it, they're in already. But some people haven't, uh, you know, or at least don't have an awareness of times that the Holy Spirit has led them. And so I don't want people to labor under the false conception that if God calls you to something, it's just for suffering and sacrifice and for the good of other people and (laughs) not you. And it's, Mm. I mean, that's just, I mean, that is the thing about Jesus saying, I have come to give you life. And, and that abundantly is this idea that this isn't a test. This isn't a trial run. This is life in the kingdom now. And we begin to experience God's abundance now, but we experience it to the extent that we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. And so if God is leading you to something, it's for the good of your community, yes, but also for the good of you. Mm. And now that's very different from the prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that where God leads us is to perfect health or to you know wealth that the world can count or values. I'm not saying that at all. But I do think that it is it is fair to say that when I strive after the Holy Spirit, when I seek after the Holy Spirit, what God is faithful to give me a life of joy and spiritual abundance um, that is worth it and that the pearl is worth it, right? And, I, and I've and i experienced that and I think it's available for everyone. Um, and I think people need to know that, that one of the reasons you want to follow the Holy Spirit for the sake of others, sure, but also for the sake of you, <laughs> because what God wants for you is better than what you want for yourself. But in 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 pursuing what is ultimately best for you individually you get you you become a blessing for other people and what's best for us individually is interdependence and mutuality anyway it's a, i guess it's another way of looking at the idea that the kingdom is a kingdom of abundance and not scarcity so yeah, that's good what are you thinking about friend i am thinking about um Black History Month, since we have we have started stepped into February, and 
Um, you know, during this month, I tend to think beyond um, African American history to the African diaspora, and uh, because I am a pastor and because I love history, uh, one of the things my mind goes to often, uh, not just this time of year, but often, uh, is the the early church, and um, I've picked up once again uh, the book by. Uh, Thomas Oden, called um, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. Uh, he happens to be a, a white scholar, uh, but he has spent um, years and years and years studying the history of Christianity in Africa. And um, he says he feels compelled, he felt compelled to write this book, uh, not so much for Western readers, uh, but for, he says he writes for the children in African towns and villages so that they might know the, the, the rich history of pre-colonial, pre-slave trade Christianity in Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there are books that you read and you can tell that the author has a love for the subject, and, and this is one. And um, one of the things I, I love uh, about the book that I'm, I'm not through with it, but uh, so far, is just the real honoring of mm-hmm. this history of Christianity and a reminder that so much of what we value in terms of Western theology, Christian theology, the seedbed for that mm-hmm. was in Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, Odin points out that there were really two areas where ancient Christianity took root in um, um, Africa. And by ancient Christianity, he really is referring to the first 500 years. Mm-hmm. So somewhere around um, the year 50 to around, you know, a little after 500. The first area is... Uh, North Africa, Mediterranean Sea, uh, Carthage, mm-hmm. uh, modern-day Libya. Augustine. Yes. And uh, the second area is from Alexandria going um, up the Nile uh, into um, East Africa, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, um, Somalia is, is close by. And he says these 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 were places where Christianity took root, um, without a, a European context. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things that's very helpful for me is that so many people in this country and in many places in the West are still living with the idea that people of African origin that we got our Christianity from. Uh, through slavery Mm -hmm. and boy it was a good thing we had slavery or else you know we Mm -hmm. might not be christian um and that that's just a lie that's just a falsehood and there are a lot of people who because they want to reject colonialism and white supremacy are saying i need to reject christianity absolutely because i need to return to my you know indigenous faith of Mm -hmm. my my people Mm -hmm. and i mean it is helpful to know that the indigenous faith of many African people was Christianity, Christianity, which obviously white slave traders wanted to hide because one of the ways that they justified the great evil they were perpetrating was to say, well, yeah, but we're giving people eternal life that they wouldn't have had before. And so that, that um, pretense was only possible if they were able to present this dehumanizing image of and part of the craziness of the thinking of slave traders was, on the one hand, yes, we are Christianizing these savages. But then on the other hand, there was this philosophy, this the, this theology even, that said that African people were less than human. So on the one hand, we need to give them the gospel so they can have mm-hmm. eternal life. On the other hand, well, they're really... Kind of animalistic, so it doesn't really matter what we do to them. It's just twisted. One of the things I um, 
learned just the other day reading this book, and I did not know. Um, it, the, the Gospel of Mark, of, of the four Gospels, mm-hmm. is my favorite Gospel, and now I have another reason um, uh, for it being my, my favorite Gospel. Uh, the writer of Mark, John Mark, is um, in, in many ways honored as uh, the, the founder of, of, of African Christianity because he um, moved to Alexandria, mm-hmm. was the first bishop there, and, and Christianity flourished uh, early on uh, through the, the ministry of John Mark. Um, so that's what I'm thinking about. Well, here's what I'm thinking about, and it's funny. I So you know that I, it's, conne- it's funny because it's connected. I often, I have very strong feelings about music in worship, and I have long been, I mean, believe it or not, struggling, struggling to put a label on them. Like how, how, how can I explain even to myself what it is about some of the assumptions in majority white congregations about worship that makes me so viscerally uncomfortable and angry. Like when we hear, because I mean, it's one thing that like people are going to love the cultural expression expression of Christianity that they met the Lord in. And that's totally fine. I mean, that there's nothing wrong with that, that, that Jesus, I think meets people, you know, in, in their own humanity and that's great. Um, but what makes me angry is what I see as this persistence in when, say, people who love organ music or people who love hymns or people who love certain kinds of liturgy aren't just talking about how they love it or how it's meaningful to them, but they need to say, um, this is better than other forms and expressions of Christianity, or this is this is more authentic or deeper or truer, or there's more of God in this. And so often when you hear people talk about traditional um, music versus traditional as they define it, and they would define that as with an organ and a choir and three hymns versus more contemporary expressions of music worship, they'll say like, well, you know, contemporary music in worship is is vapid, it's simplistic, it's repetitive, um, it's got bad theology, whereas um, traditional, and that in and of itself is an interesting word in the context that we've been talking about, but traditional music is theologically rich and it's intellectually stimulating and it will introduce you to these ideas that will sustain you over a lifetime. and it you know it requires people coming together to learn music and you have to really become you know musically literate and that's just good and this other music is bad and i'm like so here so i'm like duh the reason i hate it is because it's it's co- it's colonizing christianity right mm-hmm. it's basically saying that the authentic expressions of christianity are white eurocentric traditions yes. and that if what you like it doesn't come out of a white eurocentric Christian tradition, then it is not legitimate or authentic, right? And one of the things in the Presbyterian church that that we tend to be a rich, white, upper middle class congregation. And so when we say we need our hymn books, what we're saying is we want to be in a congregation. I mean, consciously or unconsciously, we want to be in a congregation with a certain amount of money where people have had a certain amount of formal education where there will be, you know, and and the fact that then you would denigrate a tradition that says, you know, we have music that is simple by design. And by the way, any creative person will tell you that it is harder to create something simple than to create something complicated, right? We we want to write music that is by design simple, that is by design repetitive, that is by design intuitive, so that people can come in and learn a song together in real time. And and, and you hate that because why? Because it is accessible, right? Because that means people with educational equities and degrees don't control and act as a gatekeeper in terms of who can and can't sing. Like it makes me insane because there's so much white supremacy 
layered behind all of this stuff. And it's not that people who write hymns won't go down and pluck up a spiritual and notate it and put it in a hymnal. But I mean, that it didn't have to be notated in, in a hymnal in order to be relevant and full of the Holy Spirit. And, and the reality is not all cultures are such that something has to be written on a page in order to be valid, right? So to get back to this tradition, which is an oral tradition, right? I mean, that's essentially what this kind of worship music is, is getting back to a more oral and aural musical tradition. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not a degradation of the high standards. That's just not centering Western colonial culture. And I am here for it. And I, so on Sunday, we... Which a lot of people... regardless of ethnicity, don't get anyway, right? Right, 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 right. But I just, I, again, just refuse to be angry about the fact that we are singing music at the Grove that one of the women in our church was talking about, she was writing a social media post about how powerful it was for her to be sitting in a pew with her daughter who is a kindergartner. And on Sunday we were singing a not very new song, um, it was kind of a, a mashup, um, but uh, it, it was a Michael Smith song, actually. Um, this is how I fight my battles. Mm. Um, and so the lines are, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. It may seem like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And you repeat that. And then we we merged in another chorus of something else. But she was saying how powerful it was to listen to her six-year-old daughter stand there at the top of her lungs and sing, this is how I fight my battles. And the reality is, I mean, that six-year-old could viscerally participate, understand, and own that. And and if you, as a 50-year-old college-educated person, say, well, if, a, if it's meaningful to a six-year-old, then it can't be meaningful to me, like, I just am sorry for you. Because the reality is, the concept, which she doesn't get yet, and that's okay, but the concept of saying that worshiping God is how I fight my battles, that what is visible and powerful in this world is actually not what is ultimate and transcendent and eternal. And so it might seem like I'm surrounded by the forces that are against me, but what I know is that I am surrounded by the God that's for me. Like, if you can't appreciate that, then probably you're doing pretty well in the empire that's passing away, mm. A, number one. And B, I just think, like, that is so... Um, that, that is so prophetic to see a community of people who are able to join together across different cultural backgrounds and generate multi-generational. Like, I just am not going to apologize for it anymore. And most of the, the digs against it is like, well, it's just not, you know, it's not deep. It's, it's not notated. Like, you don't have to read music. Like, you don't have to learn it in the choir. When Miriam started, came out of the Red Sea and started singing a song, I promise you there was no papyrus <laughs> that she was handing around to the choir. She's there was no tambourine. rehearsal. I mean, yeah. it th- th- just was something that was done in real time. And by the way, just because the congregation can come in and intuitively start to sing a song does not mean that there's not so much work behind it and the group of musicians who because there's so much work behind it because it is harder to make something accessible to more people than it is to just work with a select few professional musicians that you so anyway i just i'm over it there's a big movement in lots of places that's called um you know, and especially in academia right now about decolonizing, like you want to decolonize the classroom, you want to decolonize. I mean, just look at some of the things that we label as as good, as intellectual, as rigorous and deep. How many of those things are actually just code for European? Yeah. Right? And yeah. And it's not that God has not worked through European cultures. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying when we can only see something in the line of handle we need to question not whether god worked through those dudes but what does it say when we're not looking at other places and like and even handle if you sing the hallelujah chorus it's repetitive it is so repetitive (laughs) right and this and this is my last rant if one more person bitches to me 
about how they cannot stand contemporary music because it is vapid and it is repetitive and it is simplistic and yet raise $10,000 to put their high school youth on a plane and fly them to France so they can go to a Taze worship because when it requires international travel and includes a foreign language, then it's sophisticated and cool and mystical and metaphysical. But if it's something that poor white, black, and brown people can do in their own communities, it's trash. I mean, that is just classism and elitism, and I am over it. I'm over it. And every conversation about worship that I hear in the Presbyterian community is just elitist, and I'm tired of it. I've had several conversations over the past year. Um, In our Presbyterian context, when people find out that I'm a Presbyterian pastor, especially in this part of the country, they go to... Scotland. Mm-hmm. They, they, they want to talk about Scotland and, oh, you're Presbyterian, Scottish this, Scottish that, which is fine, which is fine. Okay, I get it. But then I remind them, hey, did you know that John Knox, who brought Presbyterianism to Scotland, got it from Calvin in Geneva? And when Calvin was trying to um, uh, uh, figure out, discern, Uh, his theology. You know who Calvin reached back to? He reached all the way back to this African by the name of Augustine, right? And But when we tell the story, we don't tell that whole story. And I think um, things like uh, Odin's book um, are so important because history matters. Telling the story right matters. Because if we don't tell the story, tell the history right, we will then perpetuate and give power to lies. To lies. Yes. But that's what, we just went uh, last week to see Brian Stevenson talking, and I'm a huge fan of Brian Stevenson. And if you don't know who he is, look him up. But, I mean, his whole thing about changing healing in the nation is like there are four points. And one is you have to get proximate. You need to be in actual, not theoretical, not an advocate at the ballot box only. You need to be in actual relationship with people who are suffering and people who are at the bottom of the current empire. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Mm. The second thing is you have to change the narrative, right? There are just some things that you are taught we're history, we're true, we're reality, and they're not, and they're not, right? So you have to stop telling the same half-truths and lies and repeating them and giving them more and more powerful. And I, I mean, and we just have to quit doing that about being Presbyterian. We had our Grove 101 class on Sunday, and we would do it for four weeks, and it's not a membership requirement, but it is sort of a space where we try to make a place for people who are new or not new, just to come in and talk about, you know, what is this place and why do we do what we do? And, you know, um, because during worship, I don't want to talk about the Grove. I want to talk about Jesus. So this is another space to do that. Um, but we, we start with Presbyterianism. And I say to people really clearly, we're talking about this first because it's the least important thing. It's just the least important thing about this community, mm. right? Like, I'm not embarrassed of it. I'm not trying to hide it. But, like, we are we are a community of That's Jesus good. Christ. We That's happen good. to be Presbyterian. There's nothing wrong with being Presbyterian. But there's nothing particularly right with being Presbyterian either. And so we're talking and about— And by right, you mean superior to correct, other— Correct. Yes. Correct. I mean, we are just a different kind of broken than every other brand of Christianity on this earth, right? Mm-hmm. So— it again, like I'm not ashamed of it. There's, I'm not running from it. I just, it's just not that you're just important. Not make, you're, make, you're not making an idol of it. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's my thing. Like, I, I mean, the way people talk about John Calvin, I'm like, have you read him? I mean, first of all, John Calvin would be mad at the way people are talking about John Calvin because you know who John Calvin talked about? Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that's good. What is the matter with you people? But I, we're just saying like. There's nothing, there's nothing, you don't have to believe in predestination and you don't have to like organ music and you don't have to, I mean, what is it? Because one of the things people do when they find out your community is Presbyterian is that they Google. (laughs) It's like, oh, wait, you guys believe, wait, what? Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. I I mean, and I just say to people, look, what this means is Presbyterian, it's Greek word, 
means for elder, it means that this community is led not under the sole authority of the pastor or not under the sole authority of some bishop sitting somewhere else. It means this is how we live out our belief in the priesthood of all believers, that every person who gives their life to Jesus is called into a life of ministry that matters, that is empowered by God. And so that in this church, there are seasons where members of this church become spiritual leaders with the pastor to become the spiritual authority and leaders in the congregation. That's what it means. And people are like, oh yeah, I like that. I mean, people from across the mm-hmm, spectrum mm-hmm. love that and say, and you know, we talk about, we believe that Jesus Christ alone is the conscience, Lord of your conscience. So if the Presbyterian church nationally does something you don't like, cool. Because you're not pledging allegiance to them, right? That's good. So, I mean, there's nothing in here that we need to run away from, but there's lots of things that we lift up and say, oh, this is what it means to be Presbyterian. That's all just adiaphron. Like, it's all just culture, which isn't bad, except when we substitute the culture for the actual reality that we're supposed to be chasing. And I'm over it. And change, again, changing the narrative is so important. One of the things that's in the air in our church, in our church family, is this narrative that says, if you're white, you can't sing and clap at the same time. Mm -hmm. If you're white, you can't sway and sing or dance, right? I'm like, well, have you... Have you taken a look at some white Pentecostals or take a look Mm -hmm. just um, at um, the Azusa Street Revival? It was some black folks some white folks, uh, mostly poor people, Mm -hmm. right? But they get together and they have these great experiences in the spirit. There's just a narrative in many of our congregations that is false, but we haven't uh, dismantled. We haven't deconstructed that false narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I just... More than one occasion, people within our denomination have admitted to me Mm -hmm. that they just feel like the Grove isn't really a Presbyterian church anymore. And what they mean by that is because we don't worship with an organ, with hymnals, with, you know, like they look at the way we worship and go, well, you're not, and they would, they would be so quick to say it's not because of the diversity of the congregation. They love the diversity of our congregation, but they want to see still us using the purple handbook, still us using the present word curriculum, still us having a PW. And I mean, like, you know, it's just, we need to show up culturally. Because when you're Eurocentric, Mm -hmm. the narrative is this is the standard. Anyone else, black and brown people, you are welcome. As long as you, you come in here like us. You, you adopt this. And you know what? Some of us have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've done that. And now we're trying to uh, change from within, right? Mm-hmm. We Okay, we're, so we're on the inside now. Mm-hmm. But we see that we need to change this thing, this culture, uh, this church culture that we're in. Well, I'm just, I'm happy to understand that this is the label. And the next time I read one of those articles, my, I'm going to comment and I'm going to say, okay, colonizer, <laughs> be done. <laughs> you first. I want to ask you. you. <laughs> no, because I, I need you to talk about what you're preaching about first, because I, I'm, I need everyone to forget how snide and snarky I've been right now before I say with great authenticity snarky. what I'm going to preach about next. Oh, well, because you have not been it's snarky. a little bit of a record scratch. I have wow. tried to be snarky. If I have not been snarky, oh, it's no. just because I have failed. Wow. Uh, what are you preaching about on Sunday? Well, by the great grace and providence of God, we're going to have a second go at um, confronting demons this Sunday. Mm-hmm. So last Sunday we were in Mark chapter 1. There's a demon that demon-possessed man showed up in the synagogue in Capernaum. This week we're in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus and his disciples sail to the region of the Gerasenes and there is a man with a legion of demons. And so mm. we're just going to confront this whole uh, thing again. The sermon is going to be similar. It's going to be about the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus to overcome. Uh, I'll probably spend a little more time in this sermon talking about the man's con- condition because the text does. Yeah. Uh, that he was... Um, Naked. In bondage, he was naked. He was self-destructive. 
um, uh, because of, of this uh, or these demonic spirits and really want to spend some time talking about um, how there these things in our lives that oppress us and again that Jesus comes to set us free and once again like last Sunday when Jesus shows up even with a legion of demons it's not too hard for him and so the mm-hmm. message really is about uh, the good news that Jesus has the power to overcome all of these things. So, you know, don't be ashamed. Don't be uh, ashamed to acknowledge these things that you wrestle with that seem to have a grip on your mm-hmm. life, whether it's a, a bad habit or an emotion or mindset. You are aware of some things in your life that just seem to be stronger than you. That's okay. Don't be ashamed. Jesus has come to set you free. And Mm -hmm. that is the good news. We want to run toward that reality. Yeah, and I think that that, I mean, it would just be so interesting to me if we, as a whole body of Christ, lived into that more. Because so much of the public expression of Christianity is based on like fear and rejection and othering. And, and what I think is underneath that is this idea of like, we have to, you know, there are people that we need to destroy or that we need to um, limit or corral because we think that we're scared of what's happening in their lives. And we're scared that if we get proximate to it, it'll infect us. Mm. Right. So, I, I mean, just, just all of this fear of, you know, gay people, transgendered people, people having abortions, people who are sexually promiscuous. That I mean, like, uh, you know, people who are poor. I mean, part of the reason I think that so many Christians just want to live in what they understand is a safe, righteous, evangelical bubble is because they actually don't, I mean, they would definitely affirm the truth of that passage, but they don't want to test it right like they don't they they are just afraid that if i get proximate to the person who has a legion of demons in them jesus won't be sufficient for me and i might get infected so i need to make sure that that person gets locked down in a prison because i don't believe in the power of god to heal them yeah that's good Mm. um what are you preaching i'm preaching on love Love. Yes. Yes. This whole um, sermon series, which is just three weeks, is um, Let Love Lead, which honestly, shut up. That's so mean. It's so mean for you to laugh at me. I'm not laughing Uh, at you. I know you are. It's It's fair. I mean, it's fair. I just. On last summer, our youth went to Montreat Youth Conference and their theme was Let Love Lead. And the kids. and it's just really, it was a really powerful framework for them. And when they came back, and we always invite the kids to give testimonies during the preaching moment after they come back from Montreat. Um, and it just, I mean, it was really helpful. And just listening to them, um, I it's just sometimes I think we, we skip over the basics because we think we've covered them. Mm. And um, we just, we haven't. Um, so I, I wanted to look at that theme. I'm... I'm not using it the way that um, the folks at Montreat did, but this week, um, the key idea um, is that you know because we believe that God is love, then when we are walking in love, we are being led by God. When we say let love lead, then what we're saying is let God lead. And when we, out of fear and anxiety, put limits on love, um, whether they're limits to protect ourselves or what we think we deserve or, or limits, um, to sort of control other people's dangerous behavior. We're just not, we're not letting God lead us. We're, we're being led by fear or, or, or something else. And so, um, and I think when we say let love lead it, uh, my mind immediately, and this is just kind of a I mean, this isn't a strength, this is probably a weakness, is that I immediately start thinking horizontally, like how do how do I let loving other people lead my choices and move me? Got but it. I think, mm-hmm. you know, where we need to start is being led, letting our love for God and our belovedness by God lead us, like letting that be yes. the thing that that both guides us and compels us and strengthens us and nourishes us. And, and so out of that will come love, for the people around us. But if you try to love people around you, I don't know. Although I've had long conversations with uh, 
my friend Carl about this and, and the greatest commandment. And I just realized he's really gotten into my head because I spent a long time arguing with him that you couldn't separate those things. Oh, Carl, you're not listening to this, but you've gotten in my head. Um, anyway, I, you and I were talking because I was trying to think of what where I wanted to go in the text. And I think I am going to use um, the account of the Garden of Gethsemane because to me, that is a moment where... Jesus's love for God and Jesus's trust that God is love is is leading him in that moment. And you see just, you see the sacrifice, you see the discomfort, you see the pain, but ultimately you see Jesus allow love of God to lead him in surrender as opposed to his wisdom or his authority or self-preservation or his sense of justice or his sense of righteousness, right? It's love. It's this really, this love by God and for God that, that supersedes all of those other things, which many of them are not bad things like a compassion for, for justice or want, I I don't know. I am at the beginning of things, but definitely this week, I just really want, it's so easy, and we put it on coffee mugs. God is love. Here's a cat drawn by Sandra Boyton, right? I mean, it's just, we, we got to get underneath that um, because I think we just dismiss it as sentimentality. Yes, because if love is leading you, it's going to mean painful sacrifice. It's going to mean self-denial. It's going to mean seasons of hardship if you let love lead you now if you let pleasure lead you okay that's something different but if you let love lead that's that's something much more powerful than sentiment and i think a lot of times when god leads us into hard places of deprivation or even when we feel and i mean and somebody named this uh, my friend octavia named this in her story of being led by the holy spirit on sunday she said you know i, I allow the holy spirit to lead me in a move from a place where I was really settled by family and enjoying a lot of success in New Jersey to North Carolina. And when I finally said yes to that, after kind of the initial season of peace passed, um, I felt very distant from God. Like I, I, I felt like the thing that I had lost, you know, because it was hard and it was disorienting. And it was just this deep irony of trying to be as faithful as a person could be and trying to trust God so much and then experiencing as a result of that, an immediate result of that, a disconnect from God, right? So so letting love lead us beyond feelings even and letting love, because I think a lot of times we talk about love being hard and sacrificial and, and in some ways, in a weird way, that's kind of attractive to us. Like, yeah, I'm tough enough to love or I'm strong, you know, whatever. But it's also, it's really about saying, I believe that if God leads me, God's love leads me to a hard place, it's God's love leading me there. And so it's not so that I will suffer or so that I will tell, it, it is really for my good. You know, I believe in redemption of pain. Anyway, I... This is all very theoretical. I'll 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 pare it down and clean it up by Sunday. But I'm excited um, to get into that. And really, I mean, the challenge is how do you say it in a way that doesn't sound like a slogan that would end up on a T-shirt or a coffee mug? Because that's not the kind of love that we're talking about. Yeah. Hey, I have one final thing. Excellent. Um, not about what we're preaching, but something from earlier in our conversation. And you're not going to like this. I'm just going to let you know. You're not going to like this. But I have an excellent. idea. Well, you're not going to see that when I finish. <laughs> no, I'm saying excellent. I'm not so, going to like it. Bring so, it on. So I know we've got to bring this to an end. But um, your experience on Sunday with the people in your congregation who shared their stories mm-hmm. about being led by the Spirit... Mm-hmm. I think that um, if and when you write something, like a book perhaps, (laughs) um, that might be a great chapter to tell those stories. I just just see that as part of of some writing. So there, I said it, period. I won't say any more. Cool. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for listening. I can't write down other people's stories. They're not my stories. Yes, but but what you were saying... Yeah. Is that those stories informed my stories? Informed yeah. not only your story, but the, the story of that story. community. Yeah. yeah so yeah. they are a microcosm 
of the grove. And so they give insight into someone who is, whether you're a pastor or a a member of a congregation, wrestling with transformation, you get to hear the voice of someone other than a pastor. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I can't think of a lot of, as a matter of fact, I can't think of a single book that's out there that really lifts up those voices. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to find out more about Yolanda's church, and you do, uh, you want to go to Google and deride and click in, type in, <laughs> deride a Presbyterian church in Charlotte, and you will pop over to their website, and you should definitely listen to Yolanda's sermons, um, the Podbean website, and Google and plug in to ride a church. I'm just a Google fanatic today. Um, If you want to find out more about The Grove, it is thegrovecharlotte.org. And if you want to hear the messages at The Grove, including if you want to hear the testimonies from this Sunday, they are on our worship podcast. Go to iTunes and it's The Grove Charlotte and you can hear it all. Thanks for listening. 